the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history. Of... A warm welcome and thank you for tuning in in another episode of Sake on Air the world's first podcast dedicated to exploring and expanding the dialogue around Japan iconic beverages, sake, that is Nihonshu, shochu and awamori. We usually record at the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Information Center in the heart of Tokyo. And of course, this show would not be possible without the incredible support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. My name is Sébastien Lemoine, I'm one of your regular hosts, and today I am uh, joined by two fantastic ladies. It's actually a multiplex uh, from three different locations in the world. Today I've got Sarah from uh, London and Arlene from Switzerland. So good evening to you ladies. Good evening. <laughs> good morning to you. Today's topic for the show is, is wine the best way to promote sake? And I want to send you to the Sake on Air website uh, so that you can have a look to the article that Arlene published on, on the site a, a few months ago. I think it was in September last year, 2023. And to discuss that topic, we wanted to have uh, Sarah with us, who is a a uh, sake specialist, but a wine specialist as well. Uh, you may have uh, listened to previous episodes and one of them uh, where Arlene introduces herself a little bit more, but this is the first time that we have Sarah on the show. So I would like to start to ask Sarah to introduce herself and share a little bit about herself. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, so I live in London in the UK, but as you can tell from my accent, I'm not originally from here. So I'm from Canada, but uh, have lived in various places around the world and settled here about seven years ago. Um, I've been teaching sake and wine at West London and South London wine schools for the past few years. Um, I originally got into wine uh, back when I lived in San Francisco uh, and over the you know course of many years studying, I've turned from a student into an educator myself, and then sort of independently got into sake, and uh, then kind of combined the two and enjoy teaching both of these beverages to our wonderful students at the school. And I understand that you're actually passionate about sado as well, the way of tea. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, and it has if it has played a role in your appreciation of sake? Um, yes, so I've been uh, studying the way of tea or, or sado for about 20 years. Um, so I was a exchange student in Kyushu studying at Ritsumeikan Asia Pacific University back in 2000. Uh, and at that time, um, I was able to begin my tea studies as the university had a wonderful tea program uh, established by our uh, Urasenke School's uh, former grandmaster, Honsai Daisosho. Uh, and I continued my tea studies after returning to North America, and then in 2012 had the chance to return uh, to Kyoto for a year um, and study tea intensively as part of the Midorikai um, sort of overseas uh, tea scholarship program. So during that time, you are kind of thrown into full cultural immersion in everything to do with the, the tea world. So we spend about uh, four hours a day 
in the, the tea rooms learning different tea procedures and four hours studying history, all aspects of the Japanese traditional arts, uh, including food preparation and a little bit about sake, um, because when we are hosting a full length tea gathering or chaji, um, sake accompanies that meal. We serve sake three times. Uh, and it was really that side of, of sake uh, from the tea world wanting to be able to explain this beverage uh, you know, and sort of the reason I would choose a particular sake to serve to guests in the tea room. I thought, well, I should study more about this drink, uh, kind of apply the, the same things I was already applying to wine. Uh, and really, that's what sort of captured me in, into the world of sake. Yeah, and I think it would deserve a full episode to talk about sake and um, and and tea, and we probably we have to plan that for for the yes, future. So there's, it's a fascinating world, and um, you know, I would, would would love to give that uh, you know a full episode to devote to in future. So, Arlene, you had a chance to introduce yourself during episode 106 on Sake on Air, and I invite our listeners to go back to that episode to know a little bit more about uh, who you are. And I have one question for you. I mean, that article, Is Wine the Best Way to Promote Sake, is the first one you published on the platform. Why did you choose that theme? So one of the events that I go to very regularly is the Salon du Sake, which takes place in Paris. And um, obviously France is a hugely wine-driven country. And over the years that I've been going to Salon du Sake and also just kind of observing and, and talking to brewers and talking to importers and promoters, there seems to be this real tendency to try and bring sake closer to wine. I mean, you see that particularly uh, recently with discussions about terroir and then the word being used in sake and then people having doubts about whether you can use this the word in the same way it's used for wine. And then also things like some breweries who are doing their own rice production, describing themselves as domain, getting more into the soil analytics in, in the way that a winery would. And also then more visual things like a lot of branding changing. And for example, Masumi, who are based in, in Suwa and Nagano, recently rebranded a lot of their range to labeling that looks very, very similar, like strikingly similar to a wine bottle. And so they've taken away the Japanese calligraphy. I mean, they still have it on some of their range, but it's been replaced with a very clean design, which is very modern and very international. And so there's a lot of people both saying like kind of, well, is, is sake trying to make itself look like wine, trying to present itself like wine, to, trying to make itself understood like wine? And I know that the, the JSS, the Japan Sake Sochu Makers Association at least, are very behind that idea. Um, because I was also aware that they're doing this um, partnership with the International Seminary Association. And I was lucky enough to interpret for a tour of wine sommeliers who visited Japan at the beginning of 2023. And it was a fantastic experience. And they were really, really motivated. They were fascinated. And I could see a lot of potential there. I see a lot of people concentrating on this particular point of intersection between sake and wine, and I'm interested in how that's going to play out. Sarah, on your side, you are basically in, in both worlds. I mean, as a wine specialist and sake specialist, you do uh, education programs for both beverages. Uh, what, what, what do you think? 
I agree with everything sort of Ar Arlene has said as far as some of these issues that are uh, sort of catching catching people's attention in in the sake world and having this debate of you know is, is wine going to be the best best vehicle. At our wine school, um, you know, we have a very established wine program. Most of our wine classes consistently sell out. Uh, so we kind of thought when we launch sake, uh, it will be a bit like the Field of Dreams movie in baseball. If you build it, they will come. And all of our wine students who are so enthusiastic to sign up for all of our classes will, um, you know, be be keen to jump straight in. And we we have definitely had a good level of interest, but I'd say I've actually had just as much interest from people coming in who were completely new to the school, not at all into wine, maybe coming from beer backgrounds or, you know, had had, had sake once at a restaurant but weren't really into a drink already. So I do think there is great potential with tapping into the wine market, but some of what I see looking at all the ways that uh, the industry is trying to push sake is that it seems like we're driving so much of our attention towards the wine world and maybe not paying as much attention to some of these other avenues um, that, you know, we could really intrigue drinkers in. So bringing, you know, some attention to craft beer and also people who don't actually enjoy drinking one of these other beverages. I know, Arlene, you were, you know, not a particular wine fan and didn't really drink much before uh, encountering sake. And I've had some of my own family members who, who were the same. So, for me, I, I love all of these drinks, but I think we need to be outreaching to people who maybe haven't really found a fit with wine or with beer yet, because sake, with its lower acidity level, um, sort of different aroma and flavor profiles, I think it really appeals to a lot of a lot of people that have struggled with things like wine or the bitterness in beer, for example. That's a really good point. And I'm also interested in, like, say, when you've had some wine students who come to a sake course and so like they're at the wine school already, they're interested enough in wine to pay for further education. When they first encounter a sake, and this is kind of leaving aside the case where they've had a sake before and didn't like it, possibly because it wasn't a great one. <laughs> when they, when they like literally as they take their first sip, what is their reaction? Like what is on their face? What is their body language? What's the first thing they they notice? I think because so many of the, the students we have have experienced sake before in the UK, but often not in an ideal setting. The reaction I see probably 80% of the time is pleasant surprise. Um, so they may have had, had sake before that uh, wasn't wasn't stored correctly, um, is past its prime, or have really only experienced kind of the, the warm, uh, lower quality sakes that would be served in, in Asian restaurants. Um, and when you give them something that has the sort of potential to have the complexity level of wine and just as much going on in the glass, they're they're quite surprised. Um, but then I think once we start peeling away a few layers and they've had one or two, if we're say going through a, a flight of six in an intro class, a lot of them sort of have to go through a bit of a palate recalibration. And certainly compared to sake, um, wine, we've got a much lower acidity level, probably a third to a fifth, um, and we've got a higher sweetness level. So for people who are say already used to the um, WSCT wine uh, tasting methodology, um, you sort of have to reset all of your normals so a lot of them will, you know, have the idea of what we would call a high acid sake. That would actually be probably, a, you know, maybe a medium uh, at best level wine. Um, so they they figure it out quickly. So if people are there for kind of a, a one or two day intensive course, usually after that um, first day of resetting, they'll they'll get there. But a lot of it is just sort of embracing that idea that sake can be 
a little bit more subtle, uh, but that subtlety um, actually lends itself far better to things like food pairing, where with wine, you you have to know what you're doing to a, a greater extent um, to avoid unpleasant combinations, whereas that's much harder to do with sake. Absolutely. When, when, when you get students into the classroom, I mean, they've already paid for the course and they know that they're, here, they're there for um, a few sessions. So I guess they will not... Uh, uh, go away after testing the first flight. However, I have a question for you. Um, I, I, my personal, uh, I would say, experience is that when you you put some uh, yellowish liquid in a, say, a wine glass in front of somebody who's a wine drinker, whether he or she wants it or not, he or she has expectations in terms of uh, acidity, and flavor profile and aroma profile. And as you uh, very clearly explained, uh, wine is uh, different from sake. So uh, a small question for you is, wh what's the first sake that you would introduce to a, a wine drinker if you only had one chance to, uh, to convince him? And I'm not maybe asking for one particular brand, but more, I mean, how do you come to choose the first one? Yes, it's it's a great question, and I'll say I have a I have a flight of kind of probably six of those particular sake. So we we will be launching a new class in 2024 specifically targeted for you know wine drinkers who want to get into sake, and it's really picking those drinks that we think will have the best chance of capturing their interest. Um, so if I could only pick one of that six, it would probably be the Kamokinshu Tokubetsu Junmai, uh, which is a low ABV, um, sitting around 13 percent uh, sake from Hiroshima. It's very um, sort of light, fruity, refreshing, um, and I think it helps to immediately combat some of the stereotypes that wine drinkers sometimes come in to the sake world having. So, you know, we might presume sake is going to be high alcohol. Well, this is only 13%. It's quite similar to a typical white wine, um, something kind of on the refreshing end of the spectrum or a cool climate, um, sort of lower tannin red wine. Uh, it's something that, you know, we're usually going to be serving chilled in a wine glass, uh, sort of so already appealing to, you know, a white wine drinker, having all of those lovely aromatics that will be jumping out. Um, and it often has just a little bit of that um, slightly dissolved carbon dioxide uh, in the bottle, which will give you that little um, sort of prickly feeling on the tongue, that pétillance, which again, tends wine drinkers seem to really like that uh, sensation of zinginess. So whenever I've used that, it tends to be a sake that immediately helps them reframe their their mindset towards sake and say, oh, I've never had a sake like this. I didn't know sake could do this. Tell me more. Um, and then they are really keen and receptive to uh, to dive in further. Excellent. I mean, when, when this happens, tell me more, you know, you're on the right track. Interestingly enough, of the last few years, we've seen a number of breweries releasing new flavors, new new types of sake and some of some of them, but clearly not all of them. I mean, go toward a, a direction which is closer or, or gets closer to 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 the to the wine world. Do you think this helps, Arlene? Or I think some of it helps, but not because it's going closer to wine. I think there's there's a larger movement among Japanese sake makers to go lower ABV, and that's simply because they've noticed that in the in the Japanese market, particularly amongst younger people. Fewer people are drinking and people are more interested in lower ABV. 
And so that's a consideration, regardless of whether or not it puts them on a par with the ABV of wine. I think in terms of things like the changing the labeling and being kind of a bit more modern and a bit more cosmopolitan, less traditional, that's also a shift that can be seen as appealing to this younger segment of the market who are fairly alienated from sake. So I don't think all of it is chasing wine, but it, it at the same time, it does bring it closer. And I think for some brewers in particular, they've, they've really kind of modeled themselves on wine. So I think um, Taka in Yamaguchi is one of those, like domains Taka, and like specifically using the French terminology. And it's great. I mean, for me, I think it, it is a new niche of the sake world, but, you know, the sake varieties out there, it's so vast. So, um, you know, I do see some people, you know, getting a bit um, almost flustered about the fact that we have very wine-like sake right now, but there's lots of other styles too. So to me, if that new um, sort of subgroup of sake helps to bring new people into the drink, and then maybe once they've gotten their palates adjusted with that, they're a little more emboldened to go in and try those earthier savory gin mais and, um, you know, going into more of the, you know, tanne karakuchi, clear and crisp, um, sort of light styles. Um, I think it just helps to provide a good jumping off point for people who, you know, going straight into those styles of sake would maybe be a little bit of a harder sell to get them on board. And one, but I think beyond taste and, and flavor, uh, an element that will get some people interested into, into sake is, is the story, isn't it? In that sense, I personally think that the world of sake has quite a few things to take from the world of wine in terms of, of storytelling. What, what's your view on that? It's another great point. And I think certainly when um, I know Arlene from the time we've we've worked together, um, I think we're both very focused on um, telling that individual story of the the brewer and the, um, you know, the particular sake in that bottle and how it got there. Because I think exactly as you said, Sebastian, that helps to capture people's imagination. And we do the same thing in all of our wine classes. So the, the wines that consumers tend to identify with the most is saying, oh, you know, this is a fifth, fifth generation family, you know, we're going back to, you know, the the time of, um, you know, the early 20th century in, in Alsace. And, you know, we had all of that tumultuous history in between the wartime periods. How did that impact their winemaking style being stuck between these two cultures? Um, you know, France on one side, Germany on the other, creating something new and how the wine expresses that. Um, I think, you know, both both beverages can can draw on that storytelling because ultimately the consumer is going to remember that that feeling that they got when you were talking to them about the wine. They're not going to remember the vineyard, the soil type, um, you know, but they might remember, you know, the story of all of the, you know, this wine was named after that uh, winemaker's daughter uh, because she was born on this, you know, momentous day in that family's history. Um, so it's just all of those little, little things that can get people captured into that moment. I always remember the story um, Keith Norum tells uh, when when you visit Masumi about, you know, trying to get people into sake. It's not telling them, you know, that we're using Miyama Nishiki rice and we invented yeast number seven. It's, um, you know, the brewery is located deep in the mountains uh, where we had the Winter Olympics and we have all this gorgeous snow. Um, and it immediately creates that visual picture in your mind that will help you remember that drink even better. Thanks for the great insight. Uh, so, I mean, theoretically, the wine angle works. Uh, however, practically, uh, what what may happen uh, after uh, the wine angle was chosen? 
So I think the one of the challenges that I've run into with our um, you know, very dedicated wine students is, you know, it's kind of like pulling someone away from their first love. A lot of them are really, really passionate about wine. Uh, and when you give them a good sake, you know, they'll they really enjoy it. Say, this is great. I had no idea this was out here. Um, it's a whole new world I want to explore. But at the end of the day, you only have so much time and money. Um, so if they are already uh, sort of all in on wine, um, you might be able to pull them away from, you know, and get them into sake, um, you know, part of the time. Uh, but I haven't seen as many students, you know, sort of completely switch over and say, if I have to pick between doing my next wine credential or doing my next sake credential, a lot of them will still choose the the wine. Um, and in the UK, we, I think, have a particular disadvantage due to the quite high price point for sake compared to wine. Um, you know, we're one of the uh, sort of major centers for, uh, you know, a very brisk wine import industry. We have very competitive pricing for some spectacular wines from all around the world. Um, and the cost of sake uh, that is coming over in refrigerated shipping containers is extremely high. So a lot of our students, you know, could spend um, what they'd spend on one good bottle of sake and get three really good bottles of wine. So for a lot of them, you know, you have to really capture someone uh, completely to get them to move their their spending and all of that passion over into the sake side if they're already big wine people. I think I think that highlights that we're actually facing multiple challenges. So I think you've got the education aspect because like people don't know what sake is. You've got the the issue that people who have tried it before, they possibly tried sake that, that wasn't the best and they had a negative first impression. You have to get them to try it again. And I mean, admittedly, sake now moving into wine schools hopefully will make people think twice. And then you've got just accessibility. It's just like, I don't have to go anywhere special to find a decent bottle of wine. I can walk into probably these days, even large supermarkets in the UK, and there'll be somebody who knows something about wine. I can look for stickers that something's won a competition and I can pick up a bottle of wine for a certain budget. Sake, I have to go somewhere special. It's still not, I think, I don't know about the UK, certainly here, it's not widely stocked in normal supermarkets. I think there's one or two sakes that turn up in the Asian food section. And one of them, it's not clear whether you drink it or whether you cook with it. And it's much, much more expensive. So it's, I'd say, probably three, four times more expensive than a bottle of wine. And most of the time, nobody can tell you anything about it. And that's a great point. I think at every single class I teach, um, I always have those slides included. But before I even get to the slides, that's the question students are sticking their hand up and asking, where can I buy it? How do I store it? How do I drink it? Um, because that baseline level of knowledge you have for wine is is just not there. And when people are intimidated by something, um, they're going to feel a, bit, a little bit less excited about going out and spending a lot of money on it. It's just that final, that final kind of tipping point to actually get them to pick up the bottle and take it to the till and pay for it. It's just it's it's much more uphill than you think it is. And and on top of it, the challenge is to to put sake on restaurants' beverage list. Uh, what are some of the big difficulties there? I think 
it's again one of those multifactorial problems so obviously with the service industry in the UK um, we were hit very hard by COVID and Brexit with a lot of people leaving the industry um, we have newer people who you know you're, you're trying to give them so much training already being able to squeeze sake training in on top of wine general service the restaurant menu you know it's it's very difficult um, and I think in restaurants where you do have some of that expertise you know we have some absolutely amazing spots in the UK that are incorporating sake into beverage menus. And I think where that's most successful is in beverage pairings. Um, so places like Ikoyi in London, um, Yoro up in Sheffield, um, the Fat Duck in Bray, um, all of them have multiple sake that are incorporated into, it's not a wine pairing, it's a beverage pairing. So they'll be pulling from the entire world of drinks and it takes away any of the um, sort of uncertainty or anxiety about what to choose for for guests coming in, they know the beverage that's going to be in my class in my glass. That's what the team and the chef has chosen to match perfectly with this dish. And I have had quite a few students come to the school who actually had one of those transformative experiences. So um, we have another great restaurant in London, Evelyn's Table, um, and we've had a few students come in who have been converted by their beverage pairing, where the the sommeliers are expertly incorporating sake into their their, um, sort of modern British cuisine pairings um, and people are having their minds blown saying I had no idea sake could do this could match this well with food now I want to come in and learn more but in order to help that happen you know across many more restaurants in the UK we just need to up that education level so much more um, you know and I know the the importers like uh, Tengusake and Kamosu um, are, are working really hard to try and get out there and get that training done but Again, restaurants are going to default to what they're most comfortable with um, if they have limited time. And there's that existing deep base of wine knowledge. Um, if you don't have a lot of time to, to train your staff, get everyone comfortable with talking about those drinks at the table, you're going to go with what you know. Um, so I think it's just sort of getting getting past that hurdle. And then once you have people who have experienced sake and had a positive experience on pairing menus, then maybe they'll feel more uh, sort of enthusiastic about going for a sake by the glass and now that we have things like uh, the you know Corvin um, which has gone through a number of um, trials in the UK so this is a device that lets you pull off a glass of wine or sake from a bottle that is still sealed um, so it makes having by the glass programs much more feasible even for something like a delicate daiginjo where normally if you open that bottle you kind of need to to get that drunk up within a couple of days um, with the, the Corvin system, you know, you can have that bottle open for one to two months, still be able to serve it by the glass to customers, even if you're not moving it quickly when that program is starting off. Yeah, and the point you just raised is, is really important because there's a bit of a chicken and egg problem for restaurants who want to introduce uh, sake on their menu list. They don't get the volume, uh, the, the cost of uh, stocking sake um, is very expensive and you don't always manage to sell the whole bottle before the sake loses its attractiveness. And uh, so for those who are interested in, in stocking uh, sake, they should consider investing into the right device uh, to, to store and conserve that sake. But it's, it's, it's an investment, isn't it? 
since a, a lot of um, you know fine dining restaurants have Corvin systems already, um, they'll have kind of a premium wine by the glass menu. And so if they've upgraded to the, the newer technology, um, the pivot system or the screw cap system, the screw caps, you have to be using a, a sort of the wine bottle style of, of sake bottle. Um, but the pivot system, you can use that bottle closure on any type of bottle of sake, even the sort of traditional stopper method. Um, so for most restaurants, a lot of them already have the equipment they just don't know that you can use the same thing you're using for your wine with sake. So it's just kind of getting getting that out there. And it would probably be great to have the, the Coravin team on Sake on Air at some point to kind of talk about all of the cool experiments they've been doing uh, to, to prove that the system works really well. I think as well, like we were saying, the kind of, okay, there's a techno there's an education component for the restaurants, there's a technology component, there's a turnover concern. And I think another part of that is from the consumer side, it's a question of how much do you trust this place to introduce you to something new. And I know that um, Xavier Tuiza, who, who's um, founder of Kuramaster, he was saying how in the hotel where he works at Crayon, he introduces people to sake by, he just serves them a flight of, 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 of wines and spirits with cheeses. And then at some point he introduces a sake and he asks people what they think it is, particularly, particularly something like a koshu. And because they trust him and they have gone to the Crayon for an experience that he has curated, then they're delighted to, to kind of find this new thing which has opened their horizons. And certainly like places like the, the Fat Duck and they're, they're all about reputation. And so they built up a very kind of strong level of trust with the people who come there and who, who pay the prices for their pairing menus. And this is another point where I think that this JSS collaboration with the International Similarity Association could pay off in ways they're not expecting it to, because they're reaching more and more of these sommeliers who are going to go into these places with high levels of trust, and then themselves develop high levels of trust throughout their careers. And so it's not just the ones, for example, who would be taken on the tours, but there's also now a sake component as, as part of the um, association's exams. I think it it is going to work, sake and wine is going to work to some extent, but I think it's going to take a lot longer than, than people might expect. And I think the effects are maybe going to be less pronounced, uh, but possibly more widespread than they're intending. And this, this is where it's interesting to me to see there's so much focus on sake and wine when, as, as Sarah was saying, it's not just wine people who are interested. And the problem isn't just how sake is presented. There's also these technological challenges about, for example, how to preserve the sake when your turnover isn't fast enough, about transport, about curation. These problems aren't going to be easily solved. And they're also not going to be solved through a partnership between one or between one organization and another organization. So I think it's it's kind of it's a great start. It has great potential, but there's still a lot of challenges. What are or what you think would be the other possibilities to um, market uh, to market sake? I mean, you kind of hinted at that uh, earlier in the conversation, Sarah, already. Um, but I think this is the right time to delve into this. 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just about, you know, sharing, sharing the love and getting all of those enthusiastic beverage drinkers who are already, you know, passionate about something, letting them know sake exists and that it is an amazing drink. So for me, I think the the untapped market, especially in the UK, is the beer drinkers. You know, we have both the traditional, you know, cask ale um, community who, you know, I find when I chat with them, they love the stories about the brewery, brewery history, you know, the handmaking of the barrels, things like Kimoto and Yamahai. Um, you know, that links to old tradition and keeping those things alive um, really connects with that, you know, community of beer drinkers, say, who are, um, you know, there's there's a small community of people who are still drinking beer out of wooden casks in the UK, and they'll have huge festivals just for that. So what would happen if we get a little sake table at one of those booths with a sake that's been brewed in a kioke wooden tank and someone explaining what that is? Um, I think that community would be very enthusiastic about that. And then for me, the the even bigger potential is craft beer. So my partner, he loves all kinds of beer, uh, traditional and uh, modern. But, you know, when you see, you know, the amounts of money that beer drinkers are really routinely willing to spend, you know, you're dropping eight, 10 pounds for a can of, you know, a very premium craft IPA uh, and for some saisons and uh, you know sours and imperials they might be paying upwards of 20 25 pounds for a you know 500 mil mil bottle so I think there's potential out there uh, to get that market into sake uh, most beer drinkers are used to sort of lots of you know new products coming out they're used to storing things in the fridge drinking them fresh keeping them cold so a lot of those things that we're trying to encourage um, people who are newer into sake coming through and if we look at the example of the United States where you know so many of the sake brewers came out of the craft beer world you know I think there's a lot of sort of shared appreciation for, you know, the when you t start telling people the stories of, of sake brewers and, you know, everything that goes into that bottle, and then they taste it. Um, you know, I think for a lot of them, I've seen so many beer drinkers be even more open-minded about sake when I've introduced it to them compared to, to wine drinkers, where and I've had more probably on average beer drinkers say, oh yeah, I'm just going to incorporate a sake into my, you know, we'll, we'll buy a couple of bottles of sake the same way that we're going to buy a couple of bottles of beer. We're also seeing sake start to show up on some of the beer um, sort of logging apps, things like Untapped or other equivalents, whereas we haven't really seen that kind of uptake for sake in the wine uh, sort of label logging applications. Um, so for me, that's one of those intriguing things that really makes me want to see people like JSS putting some money into getting sake booths at big craft beer festivals, these places where, um, you know, people, they have, you know, the, the income to want to spend on a quality beverage, they want to hear those stories, and they tend to be quite open-minded. So I really hope that we can start tapping into that market in the future, as well as still appealing to the wine drinkers, of course. Yeah, because for our listeners who are not that familiar with sake brewing and its process, there are quite a few similarities with beer brewing, um, starting with with the facts that we 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 work with a cereal, so uh, we don't have the amount of sugar required at hand uh, to to ferment it into alcohol. Isn't that the case? Absolutely. You know, we, in most of my classes, I throw up a slide showing, you know, the basic three fermentation pathways, as most people, certainly in the UK, will be familiar with the, the basics of how, you know, wine is made. We, we add yeast to the sugary liquid, 
and voila, we have alcohol. Um, beer brewing, we have that extra step of needing to convert the, the starch into sugar with, with malting. Um, and then, you know, once you have that basis of information, it's very easy to get people to the next step and say, well, now here's, here's how we're doing that in very simple terms for sake. Um, and then when you tell them about all of the amazing ingenuity that the brewers have, have come up with to, you know, to transform rice into this magical drink, um, it tends to get people quite excited about the, this this beverage from my experience. So I think the the more of those links we can make with drinks that people already know helps to hopefully make sake a little bit more approachable, but at the same time, getting away from the idea of calling sake a rice wine or, you know, a sort of rice type beer. It's, it's its own unique beverage, but by using the building blocks we already know about wine and beer, we can understand it in a, a pretty clear manner. In your article, uh, Arlene, you use the word of uh, Henry Thorogood and you say sake has to solve a problem. Um, and that's right. Sake is solving a problem, isn't it? It is, but you have to get people to realize that and appreciate it. And so I think, again, this this, this points to the, the number of problems that sake has to overcome, in this case, before it makes it onto to a wine list or a drinks list. So I was talking to Henry about these, these tours that are being organized. He, he was talking about ones that have been organized by Kuramaster, as well as the ones that are organized by the... International um, Sommelier Association. You said, like, yep, you get these super experienced, super motivated sommeliers who have this amazing tour. They go into lots of breweries. They get a crash course in brewing, sake brewing, and they they want to bring sake onto their menus. But unless they're running their own place already, they have to convince whoever controls the list that the sake is worth listing. And the way they do that is by showing that it solves a problem. So one of the read classical examples, which is which is quoted by by JSS and Lesavia Tuiza, is that there are certain dishes that wine is very hard to pair with, um, which includes eggs and kind of certain type of types of bitter vegetables. And so that's that's one point where they can say like, okay, we've got this. It's asparagus season, so it's a huge thing in Switzerland. I don't know, but everywhere. Else. <laughs> And what are we going to serve with it? And it's just like, I've got a solution to that problem. So in, in that in that sense, it sake can and does solve a problem, but you have to have the sommelier who knows it can solve the problem, who can convince other people it solves a problem, who's willing to fight for it, and who can win that fight and get it on the list, and presumably to some extent keep it on the list. And it's not impossible at all people are doing it as, as as sarah says but i think kind of you shouldn't underestimate the challenge what it tells me is beside beer and uh, craft beer a uh, food pairing looks like another great angle to push sake uh, to to restaurants and to the final consumer and it probably would deserve a, a specific uh, reflection or our approach on how to to get there without uh, necessarily wearing a, a wine cap, don't you think? 
Yeah, and I think we we have seen JSS innovating in this area already, in, certainly in London. Um, so they've been doing the uh, Sake Seafood Sensations campaign, which I um, helped uh, doing a little bit of the training with alongside Natsuki Kikuya um, here in London. Uh, so this was a campaign where for a full month, uh, we had sake incorporated into pairing menus of a lot of both Japanese and non-Japanese restaurants across the UK and really going in to try and educate the front of house team about sake's specific advantages over wine for pairing with seafood, where you know we've got the added power of umami that will be able to synergize uh, effectively with the umami in the seafood. Uh, and then we've got the unique properties of sake to be able to dampen down some of that kind of fishy aroma and flavor that uh, can sometimes get unpleasantly amplified with wine due to the iron that's present in um, some of our grape varietals. So I think doing more campaigns like that that really show off exactly as Arlena said, what's the the problem that sake can solve, uh, uh, as, as Henry so eloquently put it, if we could start pushing sake pairing in Veganuary um, to emphasize all of the amazing ways that sake can work with vegetables, which tend to be kryptonite for a lot of wine pairings. So for wine, if you're if you're making a, a sort of salad course pairing or something like artichokes or asparagus, any of these green vegetables, um, often the wines that you keep seeing showing up again and again in pairing menus are um, Gruner Veltliner from Austria, a dry Alsatian Riesling, and it starts to get a bit boring. You know, if you've gone to a lot of restaurants uh, doing these kinds of pairings, you're going to see these kinds of wines show up over and over. Uh, but why not blow people's minds by giving them an omachi, um, something from Kikuchi Shuzo in Okayama Prefecture that has that lovely green herbaceousness, um, or uh, all of the uh, releases from Gozenshu, like their uh, 1859 Jinmai, which is absolutely you know, it was a revelatory experience when I had that with grilled asparagus um, for the first time. So I think showing people getting out there and doing another campaign like they've done for sake and seafood, do that for sake and vegetables. Um, and it gives all the sommeliers out there more tools that they can then reach for um, easily when they're struggling for a pairing on their on their list. I think another possibility that you can speak to is, is also sake and cheese, which which to me is just the most natural combination on earth. <laughs> yes, that that is my personal, personal favorite. So I teach a um, I'm also an educator uh, for the Academy of Cheese, which is kind of like our, you know, WSET sake qualifications and wine qualifications. We have the same thing for for cheese. Um, and within that curriculum, uh, while I'm obviously talking about the wine pairing side, um, the Academy is really enthusiastic about pairing cheese with all beverages. So we have cider pairings, we, are, we have spirits pairings, and we have sake pairings. Um, and I think that's one of the most useful tools for immediately getting people out of that um, trap of saying, oh, sake, I'll only have that with Japanese food. Um, give them a plate of cheese and say, actually, this is so much easier to pair with successfully than wines um, because you've got that synergism from the umami and the cheese. They're both fermented foods where we've been breaking down proteins into all of those lovely amino acids. We've got shared lactic acidity. Um, so there's so many things that just make them sing together. And just and just to put like two examples on that, like one of the most successful collaborations at Salon du Sake has been the, the cheesemonger who has been there for what three years now. And his events always book out and his table is always popular. And then when I went to the 
um, public event after the Milan Sake Challenge, um, which I think was in June 2023, it was sponsored by the Parmesan Association. And they had a table and they had multiple wheels of Parmesan. <laughs> and they were just flaking off these sheets. And they had like a 12-month, a 24-month, and a, I think a 30-month measured. And they were amazing. And obviously to the Italians, there's nothing more familiar. And so they're running around this hall with like 400 sake in it with, with Parmesan in one hand <laughs> and just having fun. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's just very natural. And so that I think is, is kind of, because I think that the sake, what also kind of made me a bit wary about the, this idea that wine is the ideal thing to, to use to promote sake is there's a lot of theoretical evidence for it. But it's like when you actually hit reality, how well does it work? And then if you're starting from the other way around, it's just like give people cheese, give them some sake, what happens? Um, everybody's happy as far as I can tell. <laughs> good, good things happen. That's what happens when you cheese. <laughs> it's really a combination of things that need to happen um, for sake to take the well-deserved place that it has on our tables. Mm. Well, Sarah, do you want to do you want to say some anything about what the BSA is doing with regards to pairing and and reaching out to different bits of the gastronomy community? Um, we could again. I think from from a political standpoint, for myself, it will be ideal if our more senior people feel feel that. But I think one of the things I'd like to ask you to probably end on is, you know, Arlene, I know from our, our conversations when we first met and I was asking you, how did you get into sake? Um, I was really interested to hear that you weren't a wine drinker, you weren't really a beer drinker before, um, and then you had sake and then suddenly it just opened your, you know, your eyes to this amazing world of uh, fabulous alcoholic beverages and, you know, sake was your, your first love. And I know, you know, there are other well-known people in the sake world, um, like our, uh, you know, sake revolution team, uh, Tim and John, who have similar backgrounds. And, you know, for me, one of the most eye-opening experiences with the power of sake was my godparents who, you know, they taught me a lot of everything I know about food and, um, you know, culinary appreciation, but they did not like drinking alcohol at all. And I brought them a bottle of Jinmai Daiginjo from Izumibashi uh, on a, a visit back to Canada. And, you know, they tasted it. They said, this is the best drink we've ever had. If this had been available 30 years ago, this is what we would have drunk. Um, so from your perspective, what do you think we can do to reach out to, you know, people like you and people like my my godparents who aren't really into alcoholic beverages right now, but sake is, you know, the best thing they haven't heard of yet. How do we reach those drinkers and what can we can we do to get them into sake? I'm going to have to think about that one a little bit because like for me it was a combination of I needed to know what sake tasted like because I was translating it. <laughs> <laughs> but also but also it was it's part of it is is again the appeal of the story. Because, I mean, in, in terms of my translation work, I do a lot of pharmaceutical work. I, I'm not in love with pharmaceuticals. Um, but when I first got interested in sake and I was, um, I went over to London to do the WCT Level 3. And I was lucky enough to go to the Japanese embassy for the IWC reception. And it was there meeting the brewers that things really took off. And 
even though like I had never drunk pretty much anything until I was was nearly 40, there they were so passionate about what they were doing. The sake, it lacked any of the things that put me off other drinks. So my entire family are huge wine drinkers. If you if you give my dad a bottle of anything with the label covered, he will tell you what it is and when it's from and everything else. But to me, I, it never appealed to me. It was it was too tart. It was too acidic. It was too tannic for the red wines. And then for beers, it was just bitter and and unpleasant. The profile of sake just appealed to me in in ways that they did not. And even today, I, I generally don't drink wine. I appreciate it a bit more, but I don't go out and buy it ever. And beers, I like specific beers, stouts, imperials, that are probably best described as dessert in a glass. <laughs> so it might just be that I have a a sweeter tooth. And it's not the sake when you win because it's what I'm used to. So again, I have to I have to cross the other way. I have to go across and think of it from a wine perspective. I think it's it's it again, if the shift to lower ABB is going to make a lot of difference for that. Like I know there's there's breweries trying to bring things down under 10, down to eight and seven. Um so my father, who who will will drink French wine and be kind of fossilized in it. He doesn't like going above 12%. And like he really enjoys sake, but he feels it if it's like a 16%. And so I think that's something where, again, just as you have many problems coming together, you have many solutions coming together. The brewers are already working on pulling down their ABV for other reasons. And I think that will help to, to kind of move into this market. Yeah, I think even lower ABVs is an interesting point, and it kind of makes me wonder about things like doburoku, which is obviously you know rising in popularity uh, within Japan, um, and that is a drink. You know, it, when when you pour it in a restaurant or in a flight, everyone immediately you know has has to look over and are, is you know your curiosity is piqued. What on earth is that in the glass? Um, so I have had some success, again, appealing to people who maybe don't want things that are as high in alcohol, want something that's a bit sweeter and who appreciate the unique textural element. Um, that I think that might also be another interesting gateway to bring people in who maybe aren't already wine drinkers or beer drinkers into this world. What's, what's the average ABV for Dilberoku? Um, a, lot, a lot of the ones on the market I've seen are sort of 6 to 10%. Um, so... We certainly are because we're not going through that um, sort of three-step addition. We're not going to build up to the higher higher potential alcohols. So I think it makes it, you know, a little little sweeter on the the profile, a little bit less alcohol forward, uh, much more appealing. And certainly, I think, you know, the the only other entry levels that would be in that similar kind of ABV would be things like Mio. Um, so if we you know want to reach for something that has the um, you know the craftsmanship and then you know a, a unique producer story behind it. So something like the Niwa no Uguisu Doboroku from Fukuoka, every time I've given that to people, you know, it just immediately, yeah, they have a smile on their face. They love it. Just kind of linking it to the food pairing theme, I almost introduced Doboroku as a sauce more than a beverage. 
and um, <laughs> it may not be that great for the for the brewer because you don't drink as much sauce as you drink a beverage. Um, however, uh, pairing doboroku with some of the oily, fatty traditional dishes of of Japan just reveals the potential of uh, such a, a produce or such a product for pairing. And here, yeah, that's where I connect uh, the the beverage and the food pairing story. And I think that that's something, again, that you've seen some success in Europe recently. So Maria Chiba, the owner of the sake pairing bar Eureka, went over and she did a pairing at uh, Kampai in London. And then also at Enya in Paris. And I think they were both very well received. I've certainly heard from people who were at the, the London one who are very impressed with what she can do with pairing. Yes, I I was at the London one, and it blew blew everyone's mind. Uh, you know, when you have the the hamkatsu uh, croquette with the blue cheese inside, and you get that texture element. But I think doboroko also has great potential for pairing with other cuisines. So certainly here in the UK, everyone likes their um, Indian curry night. Uh, that's sort of the you know the national dish of the UK. Um, you've also got Thai food, Sichuan food, and Anything with not too much spice, but just enough spice that you have that warming sensation for pairing that with something that is lower alcohol um, and also has that textural element that will reduce the burn. Um, those are areas where it's very difficult to pair wine with. Beer is pretty much the only good consistent option, but I see no reason why you couldn't add doburoku as another alternate pairing option for the people who don't like beer, um, who don't want that bitterness, but actually would like to, you know, have a, a sweet taste with that lovely textural element instead. I think you get that as well with with a heavy nigori. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I'm also kind of, if when I look at, Amer I mean, I don't know American breweries in a lot of detail, but when you look at them, they tend to have a very wide range of nigoris. And that seems to be very popular. And so it's kind of, there, there's something there. It's it's not representative of all of sake, sure. But I mean, like, however you can get into the market is however you can get into the market. And so I think if they can use the nigoris to bring people in, then people who are interested in going further they're in and they will go further. Yeah, and I think much more so than in the UK, um, my time sort of working in the US, nigori is much more exactly as you've said, the gateway sake. So um, you will see a nigori on pretty much every menu. It's often the first sake people try and really get into, and then you can branch out from there. But I think the the visual appeal, uh, you know, if you see that being poured in across the restaurant uh, and you walk by, you immediately want to want to know what's that interesting looking drink. Can I try that too? <laughs> and and I think it's it's the the proof that the one approach is not the only one that works, because for for nigori in the U.S., uh, wine was not the original approach, was it? I mean, I'm not exactly familiar um, about how it it did get there. But it uh, clearly was a, a surprise to me. But um, that's that's indeed a, a very interesting angle or different approach to uh, putting uh, our, 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 our beloved beverage on 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 our table. I've, I've even seen it used in Japan. We visited um, Keigetsu in Kochi, and we went into their their tasting room that they have on site at the brewery. And they have a Junmai Daiginjo Nigori. They quite happily call it their gateway sake. <laughs> and they're like, people who come in, they say like, oh, I don't drink sake. And they're like, try this. And um, more often than not, they'll walk out with a bottle. So it's just like that there, there is something about it. There's that textural appeal. 
I think it possibly softens the sake, so people who aren't used to it will just find it a little bit more approachable. Like if it, if it works for if it works for the US and it works for them, then obviously there's something happening. <laughs> also great to pair with chocolate. <laughs> Gotta go raid raid the cabinet and grab my uh, wonderful chocolate, my last gifts from you, Arlene, from uh, yeah. Bonat, and crack <laughs> open a bottle of Nigori to finish the evening, I think. Oh yeah, that sounds like an excellent idea. <laughs> Well, uh, actually, it may be time for a, for a wrap up. I mean, we we started with a with a simple question, which is is one the best way to promote sake, and clearly it led us into many different directions. And I want to thank you both for uh, answering the question and covering many of that of these directions as well. And um, that will be it for this episode of Sake on Air. Please take a moment to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you are using or you may be enjoying the show on. Feel free to send your questions and comments to questions at sakeonair.com or sakeonair on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. You can listen to the show on YouTube as well. Um, more Sake on Air is coming your way in about two weeks. And until then, come by.